going to sing a song of freedom, sing Sweet Honey in the Rock and James Horner. We here at Solution to Violence and our guest today, Kentucky State Legislature Lisa Wilner, believe freedom for all is a good idea. But for us, freedom has to do with fairness, equity, and solving conflict without violence. Welcome, friends. We are Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM. And you are listening to Solutions to Violence, a program sponsored by Forward Radio. As your host, I'm Jamie McMillan with Jim Johnson. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs education program. The views expressed are those of our guests, not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email to solutions to violence 18 at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Our guest today is Kentucky State Legislator Dr. Lisa Wilner. Dr. Wilner has a PhD in clinical psychology. She is the former executive director of the Kentucky Psychological Association, and she is the former religious education director for the First Unitarian Church. She is a two-term member of the Jefferson County Public School Boards and a two-term member of the Kentucky House of Representatives. She represents political district 35. Representative Lisa Wilmer, welcome to Solutions to Violence. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Wilmer, you represent political district 35, some 40,000 residents here. It's in Jefferson County. Give us, generally speaking, the neighborhoods your district covers. Sure. Yep. To the north, I've got Germantown, Schnitzelberg, a little bit of the original Highlands, and then heading south from there, I've got Parkway Village, Audubon Park, city of Linview, and then we go quite a bit south uh, along Preston Highway, and I have sections of Okolona as part of the 35th district. Yeah, so you have a variety of working, middle, upper-class neighborhoods. How do you, as a state representative, support legislation that, that meets the needs of such a diverse population? You know, it really is a very diverse district. Economically speaking, the 40213 zip code, which includes Camp Taylor and other sections of the 35th district, has one of the highest homeless, houseless populations in Jefferson County. And then I represent some very, very wealthy areas, very wealthy constituents in the original Highlands and and in some other sections. You know, I, well, my philosophy is that if we serve folks who have the greatest needs, and if we do what's best for folks who are the most marginalized and have the greatest challenges, then all of us benefit. So I don't see it as a conflict to represent a diverse district. I, I think the What's good policy for one is good policy for all. And, you know, I think that the folks in the 35th district, uh, while there certainly is political diversity as well, I think people understand that by and large. What are some of the different and similar needs of people in your district? Such different neighborhoods, for instance. Well... Right. I mean, all of us essentially want the same things, right? We want to live, we, we want a home that's safe and secure. We want good public schools to serve our kids and our grandkids and our communities. We want access to health care. We want good paying jobs. And we want uh, fair and equitable taxation. So I, I think, you know, we have more that brings us together as humans than, than divide us. How do you bring these people together? Through conversation, through discussion, through going door to door, literally meeting people where they are, hearing their concerns, hearing their hopes, hearing their worries. Um, having those conversations, uh, attending neighborhood meetings, again, hearing all voices, bringing voices together, um, and, and finding the common ground. So, state legislator Lisa Wilner, currently the state legislature is charged with the task of redrawing district lines based on the 2020 census, U.S. census. Why are political district boundaries so important? Who stands to win? Who stands to lose? Right. This redistricting question is a a huge one. 
Right. What we want ideally is for people to choose their legislators, for people to elect legislators who represent their needs, their interests, and their values. Uh, and what can often happen in redistricting or you know, gerrymandering, as we know it, is that too often we have legislators choosing their voters. Keep my district blue, keep my district red, protect, you know, protect the uh, incumbents, protect the majority party. That's too often what happens. And we are in a situation right now where we have a Republican supermajority and it's a veto-proof majority. So essentially the lines are going to be drawn by the Republican legislature. So who stands to win, I guess, are folks whose representatives are in the majority. Folks who stand to lose could be folks who are in um, Democrat districts currently that could be uh, chopped up in ways that maybe don't necessarily reflect the views and the political leanings of the current districts. So the people who are likely to be affected would be those who lose representative visibility in, in a district where they normally would have that visibility or maybe that, that uh, majority vote? Is that- I, think, I think that's right. I think that's, that's correct that, you know, and, and this is, I'm, I'm talking about Republicans and Democrats. When Democrats were in the majority, they drew lines to the Democrats' advantage. And I would fully expect Republicans to draw lines to the Republicans' advantage. So neither party gets more you know, credit or blame than the other, as far as I'm concerned. This has been a highly partisan process in Kentucky for a number of years. And I expect that what we're going to see as a result of redistricting this year will be just as partisan as it has been uh, even when the Democrats were in the majority. So how do you resolve that? How do you resolve that issue? There really is a resolution to it, and it's an excellent one. I have been a member of the League of Women Voters for a number of years, and the League of Women Voters, which is a nonpartisan organization, they have made an excellent recommendation for having a a bipartisan slash nonpartisan commission uh, that would draw the lines without regard for incumbency, and that would come together in a, in a nonpartisan way to agree on district lines that make sense so that populations of folks who are likely to share similar concerns are included in the same district. So I'm a big proponent of that plan. There has been a bill, um, formerly Representative Joe Gravis carried that bill, and this last session, Representative Buddy Wheatley carried a bill that that really would put in place the League of Women Voters plan. Been a co-sponsor of that legislation um, from from the time the bill has been drafted. I'm a big supporter of that plan, and I think what that would do, what that plan, if enacted, would do would mean that voters were choosing their legislators rather than legislators handpicking their voters. So this is a nonpartisan organization that is presenting that. Correct. Okay. Correct. So so it should be something that both parties would be agreeable to, right? In theory, right? In theory, it should be something that both parties would agree to. You know, as I've said in the past, when the Democrats were in the majority, uh, they drew lines to their advantage. They did not involve a nonpartisan commission like the League of Women Voters is recommending. And so it really is a break with tradition and it would be a break with historical precedent to do it in this nonpartisan way. But in theory... It should be a plan that advantage, and in theory, it seems like something that ought to be quite popular. But I guess human nature being what it is, folks who are in power 
tend to be reluctant to cede any of that power and authority. So I, I do not expect that the League of Women Voters plan is excellent as it is. I do not predict that it's going to be a, a plan that the majority party is, is going to be too receptive to. So state legislature, Lisa Wilner, supposedly to redraw political district boundaries based on the 2020 U.S. Census. The 2020 U.S. Census show some districts have gained in population, mostly large cities, and some districts have diminished populations. As documented by the Career Journal article, quote, GOP wants special session to finish maps, end quote, and penned by Morgan Watson, dated November 4th, 2021. The 2020 census show that political districts in eastern and western Kentucky demonstrates population decline, while the population in Boone County, Madison County, Warren County, and the cities, uh, cities of Louisville, Lexington, and Georgetown have experienced increase in population. Should this shift in population favor Democrats or Republicans or, or maybe neither party? You know, it's really, it's really hard to say. We talk about the population loss and the population growth across the state. If we look here in Jefferson County, what we see is that West Louisville has lost population, while southeastern Jefferson County has grown tremendously. Lots of new development out that direction. Lots of lots of folks have moved that direction. And so what that likely means is that the current Jefferson County districts are going to all shift to the east. So what that could mean uh, and, you know, my, my crystal ball isn't really working very well, so it's hard to say with, with great certainty. But what that could mean is the shift away, you know, from West Louisville, less representation there, greater representation from, you know, high, higher numbers of representatives from the eastern part of the county, which tends to be more, you know, purple or red-leaning than, than blue. So we really could see a shift that advantages there. So, you know, I think what we're going to see or what we're potentially going to see is districting in Jefferson to make up for those population changes. Redistricting in, in eastern Jefferson County, is that what you're saying? What, what I'm saying is that we could see, since we've got population loss in the West, population growth in the East of Jefferson County, I think we could see the districts in general shift to the East to reflect those population changes. Okay. Another CJ article, Courier Journal article by Morgan Watkins, quoted a Republican Senate majority floor leader, Damon Thayer. He's from Georgetown. Uh, he said this, this is a quote, their, meaning Republicans, their top priority is to meet all constitutional and statutory requirements with the redistricting maps they eventually approve. That's an end quote. But now, Lisa, the Republicans hold a supermajority in both the K Kentucky State House and Senate. How do you feel Republicans will approach the state constitutional guidelines when it comes to redrawing the boundaries? Is it possible they'll draw the boundaries in favor of their own political party, as you mentioned earlier? Well, you know, it's certainly been done in the past by, you know, both parties, as I mentioned before. I, I do think, um, you know, we have seen court challenges to redistricting. And what, what uh, Senator Thayer's comment says to me is that they really want to try and avoid a lawsuit and that's going to delay uh, would re delay redistricting at least until the next election cycle so until 2024 my guess and I really am only guessing is that they would like to avoid delays um, and so that they really will do their best to avoid putting themselves in a situation where their district lines are going to be challenged in the courts. Would that be the uh, the most constructive way for the uh, the re the uh, conflict to be resolved there then between the, the Republicans' idea of how it should be uh, redistricted and the Democrats? 
Well, it happened in 2010, right? And so we've seen it before. We do have precedent for that. I don't know that it's the best way. I would think the best way uh, would be to have conversation on the front end and for the, the majority and the minority caucuses to meet together and for the leadership to meet together and have some conversations about what seems fair to, to both sides. You know, better yet, I mean, from my perspective, going back to the League of Women Voters plan is that there's an opportunity for public input. That's not something that's happened before, but I tend to think public input is incredibly important when such important decisions are being made. I, I, there's no indication uh, that anybody is on a timeline that's going to allow public input. But if we really want to do things fairly, if we really want to make sure that voters aren't disenfranchised by redistricting, we really would have a public input period. And that would certainly be my hope and and if it were up to me, that would be the approach that we would take. Who is it up to? The general public? Make sure that to try to get that to happen? Well, as I said, the, the Republican majority, they have a veto proof majority. And so I would say who it's up to is the Republican majority. Uh-huh. Okay, so in, in relation to areas of large minority populations, Morgan Watson, C.J. Argyle, again, quotes Republican Senator Thayer, who states, quote, the state also must establish districts allowing minority voters able to be elected and able to elect candidates of their choice. All the districts with large minority populations are in Jefferson County and Louisville. Do you believe the Republicans in Franklin will honor Thayer's commitment or will they, as some have predicted, slice and dice up Jefferson County political districts without regards to minority populations so that those districts favor Republicans. If they redraw district boundaries in Jefferson County, it could affect your reelection, Lisa Wilner. John Yarmouth, who has represented Jefferson County in the U.S. House since 2006, has decided not to run for reelection. Senator Morgan McGarvey, state representative Kenzie Cantrell, state senator David Yates, State Representative Annika Scott, all Democrats have all decided to run for Yarmouth's congressional seat. But if the Republicans redraw district lines for the third congressional district, a Republican, possibly Julia Adams, could win Yarmouth's seat. What do you think about that? Well, let me let me address the state the state level races first before we talk about the congressional seat. The Voting Rights Act requires, and as you mentioned this from Morgan Watkins' article, the Voting Rights Act requires that there be seats winnable by minority individuals. And going back to my earlier comment, I think my guess is that the Republican supermajority would really like to avoid a lawsuit, legal challenge, redistricting maps. And I think if they were to slice and dice in ways that did not, uh, was not consistent, was not in compliance with the Voting Rights Act, they would be almost guaranteed legal challenges. And if, if that's what happens, there certainly, from my perspective, should be legal challenges. But honestly, I will be surprised if districts are drawn in ways that practically demand to be legally challenged, um, you know whether we agree or not on issues, and we disagree on many issues. I really am very, I'm very skeptical that lines will be drawn in ways that demand that kind of legal action. As far as what we're hearing about the congressional race, we've heard, you know, the senior senator from. Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell has said, has been quoted quite a bit, saying that that third congressional district should remain Democrat. You know, I I suppose that could change, but it seems to me, you know, we've got six congressional seats. Five of them are solidly Republican right now. Why chance creating districts that might allow, you know, 
heaven forbid, two Democrat districts. And, you know, by keeping Jefferson County, keeping that congressional seat that, that Congressman Yarmouth has held, keeping that blue, keeping that corralled into a pretty contained district may be more attractive to the Republican supermajority than chopping it up in ways that that could make uh, could put more congressional seats in play. Okay, so you mentioned the League of Women Voters and their preference. So Dick Pekulasko, Vice President of the Kentucky League of Women Voters, and Fran Wagner, President of the Kentucky League of Women Voters, strongly advocate for a citizen from view, whose job would be to advise Republicans who are in charge of the redrawing of district lines, as you mentioned. Dee Pregliasco appears on Solutions of Violence May 10th, 11th, and 12th in 2021. And she explained that the Citizens Advisory Board would first gather input from citizens, then make their suggestions based on U.S. Census, constitutional and statutory requirements, and respect for minority voters. In terms of redrawing political boundaries, first, do you agree, and it sounds like you probably do, with the League of Women Voters, should a Citizens Review Board be established, purposed to advise the state legislature on how to redraw district boundaries? And second, are the Republicans going to allow such a League of Women Voters Citizen Review Board and give it power to advise legislatures? Well, I, as I've already mentioned, I support the League of Women Voters initiative wholeheartedly. They have already rolled this out to see what it could look like. And the League of Women Voters of Kentucky, if you look on their website, they have some sample maps. They have been doing exactly what they think this process ought to look like. Leadership from League of Women Voters has been doing forums around the state. They have been talking to groups presenting their version of what they think the maps ought to look like. They're gathering public input all across the state. And then they'll go back to the drawing room, take, take it back to the drawing room and uh, redraw those maps given the public input. It's a really beautiful model. And frankly, it's how democracy ought to work. So I, I think it's a fantastic initiative. I was very, very happy and honored to sit in multiple meetings with uh, several of the leaders from League of Women Voters as the legislation was being drafted that would put this nonpartisan citizens commission in place. Honestly, I can think of nothing fairer. I can think of no better process to have such terrific public input about how these lines are drawn. Do I think that the Republican supermajority is going to embrace this plan? Uh, no, I don't. Absolutely not. We've had the bill in place for a couple of sessions. It has not received a committee hearing. There seems to be zero interest in giving this really excellent plan any kind of serious consideration. So there really isn't uh, any hope, I guess you'd say, of uh, bringing the Republican legislators to a point where they would agree with this uh, Citizens Review Board. I, I don't see a future for that initiative. And I'm, I'm sorry, you know, it pains me, honestly, it pains me to say that because I do think it's such a good plan. It's such a good plan. And I think um, that citizens, that voters, that the people of Kentucky could be served really well by adopting this plan. But, but no, I don't think it's going to happen. So if we want fairness, we're going to have to wait a while. Sadly, that's true. That's true. So uh, Lisa, is there anything that citizens can do? I know that the, the League of Women Voters are still conducting these sessions in cities across the state. Or, or there, is there anything that the citizens can do now to influence that process? Or it's just we're going to have to wait till 10 years later when the district lines are redrawn again? Well, you know, I think that there is always, it's always a good idea to stay in contact with your legislators. And especially if your legislator 
is a Republican, is a member of that supermajority to let them know that this is the plan that you would like to see for uh, groups and for coalitions and for individuals to reach out to legislators. So, you know, we're never completely hopeless on making things better, right? But certainly I wouldn't be serving in the legislature if I didn't think that things could get better and if I didn't think we needed to continue working to make things better. So I don't think we should ever give up on really good ideas that's going to serve Kentuckians well. So I would encourage people who are listening today to take a look at the League of Women Voters of Kentucky website, understand what this plan is, and to contact your legislators now, the sooner the better, to talk to your friends and neighbors about what a good plan this is and and to make some noise about it. I think that would be a very positive a uh, very positive thing for Kentucky. Okay. At this point, Lisa, uh, we have to state that this is your, our guest uh, asking for people to contact our state legislature. We're not doing that here at Solutions Balance. That's not our request. So uh, we have to uh, uh, make that statement. It's not a uh, uh, requirement of, of the station uh, or either one of us, Jamie and R.I., that's, that's your statement. You're asking people to contact their legislature. So thank you. Absolutely. C- citizen engagement, just engagement of, of voters is always a good idea. And that's coming directly from me, my statement. Okay. So let's state legislature, Lisa Wilner, let's change directions here. A hot button issue currently, not just here in Kentucky, but across the nation as well is the attack on critical race theory and the teaching of African-American history in our public schools and universities. Cedric Powell, law professor at the University of Logos Brandeis School of Law, explains that critical race theory is a legal concept that demonstrates, documents the history of court cases and litigation that involves institutional racism. On Senator Gerald Neal's Facebook Live program, Straight Talk, Professor Powell explains that critical race theory is about institutionalized racism and never has been about accusing individuals. Professor Powell explains that critical race theory is taught in university law schools and has never been taught in public middle schools or high schools. Again, on Senator uh, Joe Neal's Straight Talk program, the superintendent of Jefferson County Public School System, Dr. Marty Polio, has stated that the Jefferson County public school system does not teach critical race theory. ABC, CBS, and NBC national news documents that parents are showing up at public school boards in cities across the country and accusing public schools of teaching critical race theory, even though school board members and superintendents clearly state that their school system does not teach critical race theory. So if the public school system's or not teaching critical race theory because CRT is taught in university law schools, not middle and secondary schools. Why are these parents attending school board meetings and accusing public schools of teaching critical race theory? Oh boy, it's, it's a mess. It is a mess. Uh, New York Times today actually had an article about school board members across the country facing death threats uh, at an ever escalating pace. And it's horrifying. It is horrifying you know, no, for anyone to receive a death threat for these folks who school board members and having served on the school board for Jefferson County uh, for a term, you know, it is really hard work It is a work of love and commitment and passion for our public schools, or it it should be. And the idea of of people being verbally attacked for school board meetings to be disrupted, like we've seen in Jefferson County, for something that has no basis in reality, it really is confounding. It's baffling. Um, It's based on a fiction, a conspiracy kind of mindset 
again, that has absolutely no basis in reality. I've done some reading about where this furor came from, and there was a conservative activist somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. This really originated with one guy, one guy who kind of hit on this critical race theory as something that sounded really bad and scary to a certain segment of the population. People don't like things that are critical. People don't like, certain certain people don't like talking about race because, you know, God forbid that we should be uncomfortable uh, having to think about the meaning of race in this country. And people don't like theories because, you know, honestly, I think uh, we don't teach science very well. Uh, and people don't really understand what theories are. And so this critical race theory narrative got going, it got swept up into the Trump administration, it got amplified into something that it simply is not. And, and it has become a rallying cry where, you know, far past race baiting dog whistles at this point. This is a race baiting bugle call at full volume and it has caught on. It has tapped into people's fears about race. It has tapped into a certain segment of the population's anxiety about white privilege and white power being challenged in some ways. And it has really fed into this rage machine. So, you know, the emotions behind it, we had a hearing, I serve on the education committee and we had an interim joint education committee meeting back in July where one of these really horrible anti-critical race theory bills was presented. And the presenters, some of the legislators were really emotional about it. Um, and again, while, while critical race theory being taught is not anything that's based in reality, where the idea that teachers are telling white children, you're bad and black children, you're good, while none of it's in reality, the feelings about it, the emotional reactions to it are very, very real. And it's, it's a very, very scary thing to witness. See, you know, these faces twisted in rage, talking about the audacity of, you know, t- talking about our history in a way that's frankly accurate, that is, is frightening to folks. We saw those same faces, same white faces twisted in rage during the busing era when white folks um, think that their power, their, you know, and I'm, I'm saying this with air quotes, so please hear the air quotes in this, but that their rightful place in the power structure is being challenged. There are people who get very emotional, very angry, very, very worked up. And I think that's what we're seeing happen right now. I think it's a form of Uh, mass hysteria, and I think it's very, very scary. Lisa, let me ask you this. We covered some of this already, but these people who are feeling that their interests are not being represented feel that very strongly. So are they not being represented fairly? Well, I would argue that they are. You know, here in Kentucky, we have not only local school boards, We also have site-based decision-making councils that include parent representation. Parents can attend those meetings. Parents have more opportunity to be represented on curriculum matters here in the state of Kentucky than probably any other state in the country. Certainly, parents have more direct representation here in Kentucky than any other state that I'm aware of. So I do believe that people are being represented and represented fairly and that there is ample opportunity for parent voice 
in decisions that affect our kids. I, I will say that I think that parent voice should be included uh, in, in decisions about schools. But what we're having now is, is a distorted version of parent voice that's really not grounded in the actual world that we live in. It's a distorted version that's based on anger and fear and distortion. And a relatively small group of people that are just very vocal. That's what I'm seeing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, uh, since I'm, I'm no longer on the school board, I have not watched or listened to very many of the school board meetings, but I happened to be listening to a school board meeting, Jefferson County School Board meeting that was disrupted, had to be shut down. And I believe that many of the people who were doing the disrupting don't necessarily live in Jefferson County. I believe that these are not parents of Jefferson County students by and large, and that it is a very small, but very loud and very emotionally worked up um, subgroup that's behind this. Okay. So here in Kentucky, like many other Southern states, the attack on public schools and universities goes well beyond the attack on critical race theory. BR 60 and BR 69, bills followed by Republicans Joe Fisher and Matt Lockhart, are designed to impede the teaching of Native American and African American history in our public schools and universities. They are also designed to impede the teaching of the history of the LBGTQ movement and the women's rights movement. The theory behind BR 60 and BR 69 is that teaching these histories to students could make individuals feel responsible for the various events that occurred in the past. Have I got this right, Lisa? I think that's a fair summary of those bills. Yes. Okay. Hey, but the, uh, the critical race theory, Native American, African American history is not really about accusing individuals, is it, or of wrongdoing. It's it's about the institutional actions involving slavery, institutional colonialism, Jim Crow oppression, and racism. So, so why should the history of institutions, even those that are clearly unethical, might make an individual student feel responsible for, for those things like slavery, Jim Crow, and racism? That happened in the past. Well, you know, some of the language in the bill, and uh, and I commented on this when we were in committee and when we had the bill hearing, and I wish I could remember the exact language, but, but basically it would, and, and the bills, by the way, never mention critical race theory. I think that's important for listeners to know that the bills never mention critical race theory. They are much broader, but they use language that Students should not be made to feel, I'm searching for the word here, uncomfortable, or or students should not be taught material that would cause them to feel, to have painful kinds of feelings. And, you know, a a few years ago, the legislature passed a bill to require uh, the teaching of the Holocaust and what happened in the Holocaust. And that bill was named after Anne Klein, a dear friend who was herself a Holocaust survivor and died a few years ago. And she was a huge advocate for that legislation. How are you gonna teach students, and you don't have to be Jewish students or Polish Catholic students or LGBTQ or disabled students or the other, uh, a member of the other groups that were, were brutalized that were were murdered in mass numbers in the Holocaust, you don't have to be a member of those groups to feel pain when you learn about the Holocaust. And in fact, I would suggest that if students are learning about the Holocaust and not feeling some sense of pain and empathy and horror at what transpired, that we should be really concerned about students who are not having that full range of emotions. 
And this idea that we can legislate student emotions, that we can have a level of classroom censorship that's not just censoring content, but censoring what students are allowed to feel and what what teachers are allowed to elicit in students is mind-boggling. It's, this, is, this is not policy that makes sense on any level. Some of my colleagues have made the point that uh, teaching math for a student who struggles with math or maybe has anxiety about math, that that can cause feelings of distress in students. And that's absolutely true. So the whole notion of this bill, I, I, I frankly, I don't like to call it the critical race theory bill because that's not even what the bill says. It's a nonsense bill. It's a dangerous bill, but it's a scary bill uh, because it does have such emotional heft for, for some constituents and for some legislators. So one more question about emotion. So Lisa Wilner, you have a PhD in clinical psychology. I so do. In your opinion, yeah. So in your opinion, well, learning about history that documents the various events that occurred in the past leave emotional scar on middle school and high school students? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's not what scars people. I'll share with you, speaking of my doctorate in clinical psychology, uh, so I'm a licensed psychologist, and to maintain my license, I have to get continuing education hours every license renewal period. And I first became aware of critical race theory as part of my continuing education. So this is, this is education for folks who already have a doctorate and a license. And that's when I first became aware of critical race theory. And the context was talking about racial trauma and how some folks who are members of marginalized groups, whether it's members of the LGBTQ community, whether it's indigenous peoples, whether it's immigrants, whether it's black people, people who are members of marginalized groups experienced trauma, real trauma, real psychological trauma, just as a function of being who they are because of systems of discrimination in this country. And so for us as psychologists, for for people who treat folks who are hurting, to treat folks who have psychological distress, the thinking is that we must, as professionals, understand the systems and the structures of racial inequity, of other types of inequity, of other forms of discrimination, such as housing discrimination, such as redlining, such as the VA bill, which promised college educations to folks who served in the military, but discriminated. So you could get that college education with the VA bill if you were white, but it turns out you couldn't get that if you were black, or at least the examples of folks, black folks who did are very, very rare. And so without understanding those structural, those systemic issues that inflict harm on people historically, generationally, and still today, we cannot begin to address the very real effects of racial trauma. So critical race theory has real applications. It has real applications for mental health professionals who seek to redress harms. The idea that critical race theory is inflicting harms by educating folks, educating kids about real inequities in our history is, it's ludicrous to think that understanding the actual, the actual harms done to people causes harm to folks it's it's unbelievable. And in fact, the whole uh, adage, without understanding history, we're bound to repeat it. We have no hope to do better as individuals, as societies, as communities, 
as political institutional structures unless we understand the harms done historically. Now let's, let's talk about something that's critical. Uh, Dr. Shirley Thomas appeared on Solutions for Violence on August 9th, 10th, and 11th. Dr. Thomas is a professor in the teaching uh, department of education at University of Louisville. She explains that learning history, all history, the good and the bad, contributes to learning critical thinking. What is so important about learning to be a critical thinker? Oh my goodness, where to start with that question? Um, <laughs> we want our kids to be critical thinkers. We want our adults to be critical thinkers. We want folks to challenge information that's given to them. We want people to be able to, you know, we live in an information age where we have all kinds of information coming at us on a daily basis, good, bad, indifferent, destructive, helpful information. And as consumers of that information, uh, we want to be a, we want citizens, we want Kentuckians, we want our adults, our, kid, our kids to have the tools to evaluate what's true, what's not true, um, what's based in reality, what's based in fantasy, what's helpful, what's destructive. And without critical thinking, um, you know, we're, we're in a bad place. And some of the divisions in this country, um, you know, what happened on January 6th, some of the conspiracy mindedness that's, that we've seen really take root in our own community and across this country, um, the only the only solution to that is critical thinking skills. Okay, so Lisa Wilner, the Republicans who support the Fisher Lockhart bills, BR sixty and BR sixty nine, they will tell you that, it, that it's not about impeding African American and Native American history, not intended to be impede the learning of the LBGTQ and women's rights movement. If that's true, what are those two bills about? Well, I don't think we should assume that it's true. First of all, I do think what the bills are about are classroom censorship. I also think the bills are about stoking white rage. I think the bills are about stoking racism. I think the bills are about firing up a political, a certain, a certain political base and firing up fear and division. That's what I think the bills are about. Okay. So one more question. Neither Joe Fisher nor Matt Lockhart, the sponsors of BR-60 and BR-69, have ever spent a day as a teacher in a classroom. So what are these two people? assume they possess the knowledge or the wisdom to tell Kentucky teachers what they can and cannot teach? Well, <laughs> how to answer that question? I think the short answer is arrogance. I think, um, again, this, these bills are not really about improving education or improving educational outcomes. And so, you know, if, you're, if your goal is to fire up a political base uh, and this is something that's going to do it, then, you know, if you're a legislator where that's your goal, then that, it makes logical sense that this is the type of bill that you're going to file. Um, you know, I, I think we only have one active teacher in the Kentucky legislature. That's my friend and colleague, Tina Bojanowski. She's the only one. There are going to be bills filed, bills passed, some of them good, I hope, and good for education uh, that are going to be filed by people who are non-teachers. But I think that we need to engage stakeholders when the, the Kentucky Commissioner of Education says this is bad legislation. And his testimony actually was very, very powerful. I, I recommend that you listen to that. It's from the July interim joint 
Committee on Education, uh, Commissioner Glass spoke very compellingly about how problematic uh, BR60 and BR69 were. But when the education experts are telling you this is bad, when teachers are telling you these are terrible bills, we don't even know what they mean. We don't even know what we could and couldn't teach. This is gonna have a completely uh, stultifying effect on teachers and on the teaching profession. When we have teacher shortages across this state and across this country, when we have people leaving the teaching profession in droves, and we're looking at passing legislation that will have a direct impact on teachers without listening to teachers, we got a problem. Lisa, we are coming to the end of our time today. Uh, you have some uh, final comments you'd like to share with us. Oh, you've got me all worked up here. You know, these are these are deadly serious issues. These are life and death issues uh, that we're talking about. Um, and I don't say this lightly when I say that a good, strong, well-supported public education system is the backbone of our democracy. I mean that from you know the depths of my soul. I mean that. And when we see these kinds of very destructive, very hurtful uh, on a personal level, on a cultural level, kinds of bills moving forward, when we see the kind of um, twisted rage that is propelling this kind of legislation, we should be very, very worried. And we should be very, very engaged as an electorate in pushing back on these bills and in making sure that we have elected people who are not going to support this kind of very hateful, very destructive legislation. Thank you. We appreciate your, your thoughts and, and uh, positions on that. We are, unfortunately, out of time. Uh, we want to thank you. We want to thank you and our guest, Kentucky State Legislature, Dr. Lisa Wilner. It's my pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me today. Don't go away. Hold on for a minute. Go ahead, Jamie. And of course, we want to thank our radio listening audience for again joining us in our Solutions to Violence discussions. If you want to learn more about the redrawing of political district boundaries and citizen input, visit the League of Women Voters website. And that website is lwvky.org. That, of course, stands for League of Women Voters, Kentucky. lwvky.org. lwvky.org. Folks, you can listen to Solutions to Balance live stream by visiting us at forwardradio.org and clicking on Listen Live Now. Solutions to Balance airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. This program featuring Dr. Lisa Wilner will be replaced in our archives November 10th. To listen via our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org, choose Program Archives, and scroll down to the Solutions to Balance program that features Kentucky State Legislature Lisa Wilner. If you'd like to share your views and your thoughts with us about our discussion today with Lisa Wilner, you can reach us at the following email, solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. I'm Joe Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan, and our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Thanks for listening.